newsletter, September 2021. A case study in reincarnation. Past lives are a slippery subject. An unscrupulous astrologer could tell you that you were once Christopher Columbus's red-headed Scorpio girlfriend, and what can you say? It can't really be proven one way or the other. Reality itself is the ultimate test for any theory. Much of the theory behind evolutionary astrology rests upon an acceptance of reincarnation, but how can we actually test any of it, let alone prove it? Our critics often make that exact argument, and it is difficult to refute. Probably the best response we can put forth rests in the words of the Tibetan saint Padmasambhava, who once simply said, if you want to know your past lives, consider your present circumstances. The evidence of your prior lifetimes is, in other words, visible in your present life. Stories we tell, based on our analysis of the moon's south node and the planets connected with it, echo in our daily lives today. That is really the heart of the matter and our best response to our critics. But it doesn't get even close to really proving the idea of reincarnation. And that circles us back around to our initial dilemma. Our whole system rests upon something that people have to take on faith or not. Compelling objective evidence for the reality of prior lifetimes is actually fairly abundant. As I've mentioned before, I covered a lot of that ground in an early chapter of my book, Yesterday's Sky, Astrology and Reincarnation. But that is not what this newsletter is about. It is about what is perhaps the most convincing evidence for reincarnation to emerge in a generation. In June 2009, a bombshell book was published, Soul Survivor, The Reincarnation of a World War II Fighter Pilot, by Andrea and Bruce Leninger. From his earliest days, their son James was obsessed with aviation, but at the age of two, he began having terrible nightmares about being caught inside a burning, crashing airplane. Tellingly, his knowledge of World War II fighter planes was eerily specific. For example, he knew that a type of fighter plane called the Corsair tended to get flat tires. For another, at the age of three, his mother brought him a, a toy airplane, and she pointed to something that appeared to be a bomb attached to its underbelly. She tells us James immediately corrected her, informing her that it was actually a drop tank, which was an extra tank of fuel that could be used and then dumped in midair, and not a bomb at all. I'd never heard of a drop tank, she said. I didn't know what a drop tank was. Remember, when this conversation happened, James was only three years old. As the wheels turned, young James brought forth more and more information, culminating in him naming the ship from which he had taken off. He called it the Natoma. He also recalled the name of his best friend aboard that ship, Jack Larson. Both of these highly specific facts were verified. Jack Larson turned out to be real. He was old but still alive and well and living in Arkansas, and he had flown from the Natoma Bay, not Natoma, but Natoma Bay, which was a small aircraft carrier serving near Iwo Jima in World War II. 
young James had told his father that he had been shot down in the fierce battle for that same island. There's more. According to a January 2006 story posted by ABC News, uh, through some research, James' dad, Bruce Leninger, had learned that only one pilot from Manatoma Bay had actually been killed in the battle for Iwo Jima. His name was James M. Houston, Jr., Further research revealed that Ralph Claiborne, a, real, a rear gunner on a U.S. airplane that also flew off the Natoma Bay, said his own plane was right next to one flown by this James M. Houston Jr. During the raid near Iwo Jima, March 3, 1945, he added that he saw Houston's plane struck by anti-aircraft fire. I would say he was hit head-on right in the middle of the engine. This, of course, echoed young James' nightmarish memory of going down in a burning airplane. I've only scratched the surface of James Leninger's story here. If you'd like to learn more, go ahead and read Soul Survivor. Also, Leslie Keene's fascinating 2017 book, Surviving Death. Also, it covers the same tale with a more of a journalist's eye. If you prefer video, there's a 2021 six-part docuseries, also called Surviving Death, based on her book. It contains compelling footage of the Leningers speaking for themselves, as well as a lot of other mind-boggling material. I totally recommend Surviving Death, the video. Proof of reincarnation? Stories such as James Leninger's are as close as we are ever likely to get to winning that grand prize. Disbelievers like to dismiss such tales with words like coincidence or worse, hoax. In this case, coincidence obviously strains credulity beyond the breaking point. Hoax is always possible. But see that chapter in Yesterday's Sky that I mentioned if you would like a source for another 1,700 similarly documented cases. I was delighted to find an A-rated uh, bit of birth data for James Leninger in Astro Data Bank. Uh, uh, in the print version or online version of, of this article, you, you can see his chart. Obviously, I can't do that in, a, in an audio track. You may want to have a look at it. For those of you who are new to evolutionary astrology, let me provide a quick summary of our technique for scrying the outlines of a past life story from a present-day birth chart, or at least for getting to the karmic essence of it. I want to emphasize that these are stable, standard, analytic techniques which I've taught to thousands of people. I've written about them extensively, and I've used them for many years with my private clients. I'm not in any way adjusting the methodology to make it better fit Leninger's story. So let's put the techniques to the test. The process starts by discerning who the person was in the prior lifetime. There are three steps for accomplishing that. Number one, look to the lunar south node in terms of its sign and house. Number two, see if any planets are conjunct the south node. Number three, look at the sign and house position of the planetary ruler or rulers of the south node and any planets conjunct them. Next, we determine the circumstances the person faced by adding two more steps to the analysis. So, number four, what aspects other than a conjunction are formed by the south node? And then finally, number five, what aspects other than the conjunction 
are formed by the south node's ruler or ruler. So just five steps. Let's go through these steps methodically, one by one, as we analyze James Leninger's chart, seeing how well they resonate with the story that he tells. We start with the south node sign and house. James Leninger's south node lies in Pisces and in the sixth house. When we think of war, Pisces is not the first sign to come to mind, but remember, the south node refers to unresolved karma carried forward into the present life. If that is true, we should see it quite visibly today. Bullseye, exactly why are you now listening to all me talking about James Leninger? It's because he demonstrated the spectacularly Piscean mystical and psychic feat of recalling the details of a previous lifetime details that were precise and verifiable. That salient, defining fact of Leninger's present life reflects Pisces perfectly and hints at prior life psychic development. Take it a step further. Over the years ahead, how many times is James Leninger going to hear the words, oh, you're the guy that book was about? Carmel haunts us in the present life, and it is far from always being a welcome or pleasant thing. What about the south node being in the sixth house? That spells duty, required behaviors, servants, and, of course, he was under orders in his prior life as an aviator. He was, after all, a soldier. How many Piscean souls have ever felt like going to war? Mostly they did so only because they were required to. In this prior lifetime, James' soul was conditioned by the classic sixth house parameter, obeying orders. We might further tie house and sign together and speculate that he had been some kind of spiritual disciple in a lifetime prior to his experience as a World War II fighter pilot. Perhaps he was once a monk under vows of obedience and service. And perhaps that where he, that's where he developed his psychic sensitivities. Monks and nuns, by the way, wear uniforms in order to minimize individual differences. So do soldiers. Next, we look at planets conjunct the south node. In James Leninger's chart, we see two such planets, Jupiter and Venus, with the south node squeezed in between them. At a deep level, we are again seeing evidence of a person with a benign, loving nature, Jupiter and Venus. Do we have a problem here? Initially, we are quick to recognize that so far none of this seems to have the slightest connection with James Leninger's horrific past life memories. But remember where we are in our procedural outline. We are still looking at his nature rather than at his circumstances. How many benign, loving humans have been caught up in war against their wills and against their natures simply because they were under orders? Is that the story we're seeing emerge here? So far, though, we have still not encountered any evidence of Japanese anti-aircraft fire. Read on for that. We'll soon get there. But Jupiter and Venus 
in conjunction with the South Node can be read in a more superficial way too, and it still tells us something that might be useful to know. Whatever its fearful realities, from a social perspective, being a fighter pilot is a dashing, romantic role. At least that is the public perception. Jupiter and Venus reflect those star qualities. If you doubt what I'm saying, just watch that old Tom Cruise film, Top Gun. There it is. Moving on in our outline, planetary rulers of the South Node. In this case, we have two such rulers, Neptune, the modern ruler of Pisces, and Jupiter, its classical ruler. I always advocate using both of them, with the classical ruler often more focused on the person's objective past life situation, and the modern ruler typically giving us more psychological information, more like what it felt like at the time, more than what it looked like. Uh, we have already explored Jupiter since it's conjunct the South Node, as well as being the ruler. All that we add by knowing that it is also the ruler of the South Node is perhaps a little more emphasis on the star quality Jupiter dimensions of his previous identity, the glamorous fighter pilot, while we fade the Venusian elements a bit simply by comparison. Now, Neptune has the nature of Pisces. And so the planet itself does not add much that we have not already seen. However, Neptune lies in early Aquarius, late in the fourth house, and that's valuable new information about who he was in this prior life. Neptune being in Aquarius adds a rebel note to the mix, that James felt like an outsider. The term felt like is echoed in Neptune's placement in the very hidden and feeling-oriented fourth house. Note how once again we are seeing the theme of a person under orders to be in a situation antithetical to his actual nature. Fundamental theme. Remember, though, our attention is still focused on learning about James' prior life identity, figuring out the circumstances he faced, still lies ahead in our analysis. Now, superficial does not always mean unimportant, and astrology can often supply us with interesting superficial information as well as deeper psychological perspectives. Here's an example of that. In the astrology books of the first half of the 20th century, Aquarius was often connected with aviation, that's faded a bit lately. Nowadays, we often see Aquarius connected uh, instead with the digital revolution, computers and all of that. Those are two entirely different subjects, but they have the same archetypal Aquarian DNA, and that is modernism, however it happens to be defined in the moment. Put yourself back in 1945. Airplanes especially cutting-edge fighting airplanes, were the essence of modernism, and James was piloting one of them. There's an example of a very literal expression of the Aquarian dimension of his node-ruling Neptune. Going deeper, let's note that the fourth house is always connected with home and family. Let's further add that Japan was a fearsome enemy, 
and that there were serious concerns that the Japanese war machine could defeat and subjugate the United States and rule it with cruelty. How many soldiers who fought in World War II felt very sincerely and quite rationally that they were fighting to defend their land and the people they loved? That's yet another fourth house dimension of our analysis, one that is particularly resonant with the self-sacrificial elements of Pisces and Neptune, to be willing to die for your country. How do we translate that sentiment into astrological language? Neptune in the fourth house is one obvious possibility. So all of that is who James Leninger was in the prior lifetime. That's what his present chart reveals about his nature back then. Let's turn to the next question, the dramatic one. What actually happened to him? To answer that, we start with the question, what aspects are formed by the South Node, other than that conjunction? So the matrix of aspects that impact the South Lunar Node, along with its planetary rulers, carry us directly to the next level of our analysis. With all that we've considered so far, we have been exploring James Leninger's past life character. Now it's time to add some plot to the story. What and perhaps who impacted him in this previous incarnation? What did he face? And what did he leave unresolved to be faced again in this present lifetime? In practice, I am particularly drawn to squares and oppositions at this stage of karmic analysis. They represent what we're up against. Trines and sextiles are evocative too, symbolizing supportive circumstances, or perhaps even temptations not resisted. If the hard aspects tell a rich enough story, I find I often leave out the softer ones. Immediately the eye is drawn to that all-powerful Pluto. It lies in Sagittarius in the third house, almost dead on square to Leninger's Piscean South Node, only 38 minutes of arc away from exactitude, about half a degree. In everything that we have explored so far, we have been looking at a person under sixth house orders. He's ordered to function in a situation that was counter to his nature. With this dramatic, even frightening Pluto placement, Everything now becomes vividly specific. Sensitive Piscean James Leninger was under orders, both practical and moral, to look down the barrel of Japanese anti-aircraft weaponry on Iwo Jima. That interpretation is at least perfectly consistent with hellish Pluto squaring him. As ever, the astrological symbols indicate the outlines of a karmic story, not the specific facts. Pluto could have had other meanings too, but all of them would be nightmarish, getting hit head, hit head on by an artillery shell while flying at 350 miles an hour over ice-cold water is at the very least an excellent illustration. In Leninger's case, we have compelling reasons to take it literally. I never like the term bad aspects or afflictions when talking about someone's chart in the present tense. With prior lifetimes, with the water already under the bridge, in other words, I am fine thinking of squares and oppositions in negative terms. In this case, we can surely see that the planet Pluto, also known as the god of hell, 
afflicted James Leninger in a prior lifetime and did so with particular intensity because the square aspect was so precise. Further specific resonances of that symbolism are abundant. For example, uh, Sagittarius gives Pluto a foreign flavor. And of course, the Japanese were viewed as an exotic enemy, as well as a viciously Plutonian one. And they did actually kill him. That's a harsh square in action. In the inner sky, I made the point that instead of thinking of Sagittarius as the centaur or the archer, it can be understood simply and purely as the arrow flying through the air. And that symbolism is quite literal and telegraphic in James Leninger's case. That arrow can represent his fighter plane, but it can also refer to the artillery shell that crashed into his engine, literally afflicting him in that awful, fatal way. Meanwhile, the third house, where Pluto lies, is often linked to speech, which has no clear connection here. But it is also related to transportation and vehicles. So there again, we have some solid possible airplane symbolism. It's time to insert an important note. Normally, in this kind of karmic analysis, astrologers are in the position of using the symbols to create a past life story, which we assume to run parallel to the actual reincarnational reality. The story is taken to be symbolic, true in some larger sense of the word true, but not necessarily specifically factual. As evolutionary astrologers, we never make the indefensible claim of literalism. Instead, we claim evocative, even cathartic emotional relevance in our stories. In this newsletter, we are in an entirely different situation. We're in the rare position, for starters, of actually knowing the past life story. We are testing our methodology against known facts. That is not our usual situation, but it offers us a unique and precious chance for evolutionary astrology to face a reality check. So what have we learned so far? Thinking integratively, we have seen evidence of a fundamentally gentle, benign Piscean soul being attacked and shattered by the nightmarish god of hell. The symbolism is brutal, and so is James Leninger's story. It was, in fact, so brutal and had such a profound impact upon him that the memories of it survived the mind-erasing trauma of death and rebirth almost completely intact. That's rare. Almost 60 years later, in a new body, he still remembered the name of the ship from which he took off for that last time, along with the name of his best friend. He still remembered being trapped in a burning, crashing, out-of-control airplane. For that kind of karmic memory to make it through the between-life mysteries requires two qualities in abundance. One is an extremely psychic, extremely sensitive, extremely impressionable Piscean kind of soul. And the other is an experience whose impact is so fiercely intense that it is practically branded onto the mind stream as if it had been, had been applied with a red-hot iron. The next step in our procedural outline, we wrestle with the question, what aspects are formed 
by the south node's rulers. Well, Jupiter, one of his south node rulers, is also squared by that same dramatic, traumatic Pluto, but that aspect only echoes what we have already seen. There's no need to repeat any of those points, although it's worth mentioning that those same harsh themes are further underscored by this square aspect of Pluto to the nodal ruler as well as to the node itself. Now, Neptune, the other south node ruler, is where we can take our story a step further. As we have seen, it lies in Aquarius near the end of Leninger's fourth house. Neptune is also in a wide conjunction with a powerful fifth house, Uranus, also in Aquarius. That aspect is worth a few words. The aviation angle, modernism, is echoed here yet again. Going further, Uranus, Lord of Earthquakes and Lightning Bolts, has resonances with suddenness, shock, and trauma. And so they are also obviously relevant considering the story. Still, the Uranus-Neptune conjunction is very wide, just over that 10 degree mark I suggested earlier as a guideline for aspect orbs. So I only want to mention it while not overplaying it. Where Neptune quickly becomes a lot more interesting is when we pair it with James Leninger's Mars. The red planet is in an extremely powerful position, placed in both a sign, Aries, and a house, the eighth, that it rules. Even though Mars is in Aries and Neptune is in Aquarius, it is absolutely mission critical that we do not neglect the fact that the two planets form a solid square just three and a half degrees away from exactitude. We're accustomed to thinking of Taurus and Scorpio as the signs that square Aquarius, so this pivotal aspect would be easy to miss. Making that error would leave us without a final and extremely definitive clue. It would also be a classic amateur astrologer's mistake. Now, James is represented by that Neptune, ruler of his south node. That's what it means. And as such, he is personally afflicted by that hot Mars through the difficult square aspect. At the most elemental level, Mars is, of course, the god of war, as everybody knows. And it is uh, especially virulent in that regard when it lies in Aries. The symbolism could hardly be more transparent there in a prior lifetime's a prior lifetime, James Leninger was afflicted by war. But we can take it a big step further. The Eighth House was traditionally known as the House of Death. What clearer symbolism could astrologers possibly invent for death by violence than to have an Aryan Mars squaring the South Node ruler from that Eighth House of Death. The theme of death by violence is even further emphasized when we add an astrological technicality. The Eighth House has two natural rulers, which means planets that rule that house universally for everyone. They're Mars and Pluto. Tying that broad principle in with Leninger specifically, note that Mars squares one of the south node rulers, while Pluto squares the other one, along with squaring the south node itself. Death is a pressing issue here. In prior lifetimes, naturally 100% of us have experienced death. But the death symbolism is utterly electrified in James' chart. 
And don't forget, the self-node story specifically reveals our unresolved karma. His death itself is part of that irresolution, and not everyone's death works that way. For example, if you slip quietly away in the night at the tender age of 97, that's not likely to be unresolved karma. James Leninger's nightmarish, sudden, violent exit from the flesh impacted him profoundly, so profoundly that he woke up in this present lifetime with the memory of it still haunting him, still giving him screaming nightmares, and fascinating him too. His soul knew that he had to heal from it, and to do that, he had to face it squarely. How? Well, the precious healing answer to that question would lie with his north node in Virgo and the twelfth house, which is ruled by Mercury in the house of love, the seventh house. But that part of the story is beyond the scope of this newsletter. Here our aim is to just give our karmic theories a reality check. Judge for yourself, is there a resonance between the story told in Soul Survivor and the story that James Leninger's chart reveals? In this situation, we have a rare chance to compare theory and reality. Is evolutionary astrology proving that it can stand up to this kind of rigorous scrutiny? To me, the theory looks quite robust. All I would add is that not only does the nodal analysis resonate well with remembered facts, it actually goes further. Over and over again, we encounter the notion of a person bound by duty to play a role that did not reflect his actual nature. That statement is purely astrological. It does not come through in any of the published material about Leninger's prior lifetime. An astrological counselor would warn him of the dangers of repeating that pattern in his present lifetime. That's how karma works. If I were counseling James Leninger today, I might bring up the subject of how he feels about how the fates, so to speak, have appointed him to become the poster boy for reincarnation. How does he feel about that? I imagine that question would prompt the beginning of a very fruitful counseling conversation. Again, we find ourselves in the highly unusual situation of knowing concretely who James Leninger was in the prior lifetime his nodal analysis reveals. There is compelling evidence that the answer is that he once took birth as James McReady Houston Jr., who died off Iwo Jima on March 3, 1945, at the tender age of 21. A quick internet search reveals that Houston was born on October 22, 1923, in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. No birth time is available. Norristown, Pennsylvania is the county seat, so I used that for his birthplace and set up a simple noon chart. We always have to be cautious with such charts. Naturally, we don't know the ascendant, plus all the house cusps are wrong. If the person was actually born early or late in that day, the moon's position would be off by several degrees, but the rest of the planets and points are pretty accurate. I wondered what kinds of connections, if any, there would be between James Leninger's chart and what we know of James Houston's. 
this is an area that hasn't been studied much since the basic data is just so hard to come by. In the print version of this, uh, this newsletter online, you, you will see the bywheel with a Leninger's chart in the middle and Houston's planets and nodes in the outer wheel. You may want to have a look at that. The immediate question is, should we be shocked or not? James M. Houston's lunar south node lies in Pisces, only 18 minutes of arc, about a quarter of a degree, away from a perfect conjunction with James Leninger's south node. Meanwhile, Houston's Uranus, remember aviation and those connections, echoes Leninger's Jupiter placement. Jupiter and Leninger's chart aligned with the south node. Uh, that same position is occupied by Uranus in, in James Houston's chart. Um, Mars plays a very obvious role in their story, the god of war, and there is uh, Houston's Mars in a tight conjunction with James Leninger's ascendant. Mostly I'm drawn to think about that duplicated nodal axis. What can we make of it? It's so striking. It certainly suggests some degree of singing in unison in terms of their basic karma. That shouldn't be much of a surprise since, in a sense, they were actually the same person. Now, Houston died at a tragically young age. He was only 21 we can easily understand that he didn't have time to finish his earthly work, so to speak. So the universe set it up again in the form of James Leninger's chart. Same south node, at least in terms of sign, same north node. Uh, I'd love to know the house position, but we don't. An imperfect metaphor here is that if we fail the seventh grade, we have to repeat it. Under the circumstances, saying it that way, invoking the word failure, is far from fair, though once again, Houston was only 21 when he was shot down. Perhaps it is better to say that the same great work simply continues in a fresh body. In the larger scheme of things, death is only a minor interruption. Thank you.